Right, very good evening to you all. Those of you who are visitors to the LSE, welcome. Those of you who are normally here, good to see you too. Um, I'm Tony Travers from British Government at LSE. This is a public lecture where we're going to hear from uh, John McDonnell. I'll say a little bit about him in a moment. There is a hashtag for Twitter users and all the usual stuff here. The way we're going to do this is that I'll say a few words by way of introduction. John will then speak, and then we'll open it out for questions and answers. So just a very few words of introduction. Um, John MacDonald's been MP for the West London constituency of Hayes and Harlington since 1997, where he'd previously been from 1981 to 86 uh, a Greater London Council member. At the GLC, he was chair of the Finance Committee in Ken Livingstone's administration, and there he spearheaded full-on opposition to Mrs. Thatcher's rate-capping policy, although, as we know, in the end, the GLC eventually turned away from outright illegality. While a GLC member, he also, according to a recently published book about the London boroughs, and I quote, took part in a sit-in on the zebra crossing in Pump Lane Hayes to protest against delays in building a bypass in this instance, at least, a pro-Rhodes campaigner. <laughs> Following the abolition of the GLC, uh, John MacDonald was briefly employed at Camden Council and then became Chief Executive of the Association of London Authorities and after that, the Association of London Government, where he represented London boroughs of all parties in their relations with central government in Europe. In Parliament, he's been a consistent opponent of the expansion of Heathrow Airport. He voted against the Blair government on a number of occasions, notably over the Iraq War, Foundation Hospitals, top-up fees and trust schools. His views on a number of issues, notably Northern Ireland, have often been seen as controversial. He served as the chair of the Socialist Campaign Group in Parliament and attempted to stand for the post of Labour leader following uh, the resignation of Tony Blair in 2007, but was unable to gain sufficient nominations to run. He's also chaired the Labour Representation Committee, a left-wing group of Labour activists, local parties, trades unionists, MPs. He was one of the MPs who nominated, you nearly finished, uh, who nominated Jeremy Corbyn to be leader of the Labour Party and went on to manage his winning election campaign and was subsequently appointed Shadow Chancellor in September 2015. And he now has to oversee the uh, formulation of Labour's economic policy for the next general election and then to convince the electorate that Labour can be trusted with the economy in 2020. And it's on those issues he's going to speak tonight. Ladies and gentlemen, John MacDonald, the Shadow Chancellor. You can see I, I've got some form. <laughs> About, um, well, ten months ago, I was, um, to be frank, I was looking forward to a slow drift into retirement <laughs> and hoping to be seen as a sort of an elder statesman on the left, grumbling at the back of a hall like this about why they hadn't followed my policies and that's why we didn't have a socialist government. And then about, five months, then about five months ago, Jeremy Corbyn basically turned the political world upside down and became leader of the Labour Party. And his campaign at that point talked about new politics, and I think that touched a nerve 
of thousands of people up and down the country who instinctively understood the need for a radical change. And part of that new politics was the need for new economics. And the job that we all have now in terms of the Parliamentary Labour Party, the Shadow Cabinet, Jeremy Corbyn and myself, is to deliver that change. And I want to just give you a progress report on where we're at. I'm now not allowed to tell any jokes, <laughs> use any props, <laughs> and I have to be careful with my references of past Marxist leaders. <laughs> a few weeks after Jeremy was elected, he asked me to become Chancellor of the Exchequer. And it was at that time that George Osborne was bringing forward his Charter for Budget Responsibility. I suggested to Jeremy that this was a farcical exercise by George Osborne. He'd never, he himself had criticised George Brown's, um, Gordon Brown's um, Charter for Fiscal Responsibility and described it as farcical, but brought forward his own. So I suggested to Jeremy, I didn't want us to lose our first financial vote because I wasn't convinced the Parliamentary Labour Party would vote against the fiscal responsibility charter that Osborne was bringing forward. So I said to him, look, leave it to me. Let's, let me rubbish it, have as many jokes at Osborne's expense as possible, and then, well, let's just vote for it because it's meaningless anyway. We then went to the Labour Party conference, and what was interesting was that 2,500 additional people turned up Labour Party conference last year. And the discussion was about how we should relate to the government's policies with regard to austerity. We came away from that conference, to be frank, remarkably surprised about the vast majority of delegates and members of the Parliamentary Labour Party taking the view that the party should become an anti-austerity party. I then went to Redka and I met the steelworkers and their families, all of them losing their jobs. And again, what came out of those discussions was the clear need for the Labour Party to to be articulating their view of how they were being treated, particularly with regard to the failure of government to intervene in the economy and also with regard to the austerity policies that were being implemented in their community. So we came back and we opposed the, anti we opposed the fiscal charter. Some of you may remember it. It was a speech I made where I repeated embarrassing five times. And it was embarrassing. But actually humility is good for the politician's soul every now and again. So from now on, from there on, the Labour Party became an anti-austerity party which rejects the failed approach to macroeconomics that has done so much damage in this country and across Europe. And I'm proud of that, immensely proud. But this is just the beginning. It's not just bad macroeconomic policy which holds back the potential of the UK. We want to look root and branch at every aspect of the British economy and especially how it interacts with the process of government. So one of the first things I did was to commission a series of reviews by respect, respected figures in the fields of, in the key institutions of economic decision making. So I've appointed Bob Kersley, Lord Kersley, the former head of the civil service, and Tony will know he worked for us at the GLC as well, so he has a long history of public administration. He's conducting a review of the workings of the Treasury. He's brought together an impressive team of expert, experienced figures from the public and private sector to look at whether its current role and mandate are appropriate. In particular, I've asked him to look separately at the roles of the Treasury as an economics ministry and as a finance ministry. Alongside that, um, David, or as he calls himself, Danny Blanchard, for those who know the Spurs team of the 1960s, formerly of the, Engl the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, 
is looking up into the makeup and the mandate of the MPC. I've asked him to report back on whether the MPC mandate actually meets the needs and the challenges and uncertainties of the future or whether the changes need to be made. And we're looking at the mandate of the Fed as a comparator as well. I've appointed Professor Prem Seeker of Essex University into conducting a review for us of the operation of HMRC and whether it's fit for purpose. This topic now seems even more important following the recent revelations about Google's tax bill and others' tax bill as well. And finally, alongside all of these external reviews, my colleague Seema Malholtra is looking at the system of tax reliefs and tax expenditures which have developed over the years. And we want to understand whether they work as intended in incentivising business investment, particularly with regard to research and development and the development of skills and jobs. But we also want to make sure the government is monitoring them and making sure the taxpayer gets value for money for each one. All this work is important because it will help us understand why the failed policies of the past are still dominating so much of our public life. Developing that understanding is vital, but most of all we need to begin to put forward the radical alternative which we believe our economy needs. And that's why I've assembled an Economic Advisory Council and I've brought together some of the, most, the foremost economists in their areas to advise us in their areas of expertise, which range from labour economics to shadow banking to monetary and fiscal policy. The Economic Advisory Council includes Simon Wren-Lewis, Joseph Stiglitz, Thomas Pichetti, Mariana Mazzucato, Anastasia Nevatilova and Diane Edson, and Anne Petrova and Danny Blanchefer. And they're supported by a mass, an absolute mass of advisors and researchers, all of them volunteering their collective effort to develop the policy. I'm not sure what the collective noun is for economists. You may be able to advise me on it, but maybe it's an economy of economists. And that Economic Advisory Council is the new backbone of our new economic series, which was launched last month. And right the way across the UK, members of the EAC and others are speaking to packed halls about the important economic issues of our day. A series of lectures and seminars. And on May the 31st, sorry, May the 21st, we'll be inviting people to a conference on the, an annual conference on the state of our economy. Please come along. From the effect of technology on working patterns to the importance of a balanced economy or the framing of economic narratives, we're opening up the debate and we're listening to the brightest minds on the biggest topics. Again, I just hope many of you here today will join us for one or more of the events. They're all free and they're advertised on the New Economics website. Alongside all the public events, we've instituted an ongoing round of stakeholder visits and meetings ranging from individual businesses, including Microsoft and BT, to business organisations, including the CBI, the Federation of Small Businesses, the City of London Corporation, various trade associations and the British Chambers of Commerce. We've established a series of meetings with trade unions, the TUC, a range of third sector organisations, think tanks and educational establishments, including the Bank of England and the FCA. And the reason is because we need to listen to new ideas because the economy needs them. But to be frank, even more urgently, the Labour Party needs them as well. Since 2008, we've allowed the Conservative Party to set the economic agenda and to define the economic narrative. They successfully reimagined the crisis of the banking sector into a crisis of the public sector. And we need to learn lessons from that. 
the message which comes through time and time again from all the post-mortems of last year's election defeat for us is that the public don't trust Labour with the economy and the public finances. So we've got a fight on our hands and we understand that to win back economic credibility. It's possibly the most important fight in, for our party in a generation. We need to begin to, by underlining our commitment to bringing the government's day-to-day -day spending into balance. We also know the importance of borrowing for investment, which lays the foundations for future economic prosperity. Few things are more important than delivering the infrastructure our economy is trying out for, infrastructure which pays for itself by expanding economic activity and raising tax revenues. But to be frank, this is still the very beginning. We need a tax system which is fit for the 21st century in the era of globally mobile capital. We need to look deeper at the fundamentals of our economy, how assets are owned and shared, how wealth is created and by whom. Moving away from the image of a party which thinks only about how much it can spend to a party which focuses on how we earn. In the autumn, I spoke at Imperial College about the tremendous possibilities being opened up by technology and the so-called gig economy. But I also spoke about the importance of finding ways that the benefits of this technology are shared by society and does not just mean a race to the bottom, either in wages or in workplace rights. At the Cooperative Ways Work Forward Conference in January in Manchester, I spoke about expanding cooperative ownership and developing a right to own. And the aim throughout all of this process is laying out how Labour can address the profound challenges facing our society and how it can do so in a way that's fair and inclusive and realistic. I don't underestimate these challenges. They are dramatic. We can list them. Climate change, rapid technological advance, an ageing population are just currently amongst the most obvious. Now, there's two ways in which we as a society can respond. One is that offered by the present government, is to retreat and take the path of least resistance. And it's become clear that this is George Osborne's preferred path. His talk on entering number 10 of a march of the makers and a rebalanced economy has proved to be just that, talk. Manufacturing output is significantly lower now than it was in 2008, while service output has boomed. Employment in London is up 12% since 2010. Employment in the rest of the UK has risen by just 0.3%. The UK's current account deficit has reached record levels in the last 12 months. Household debt, after many years of shrinking, is now rising rapidly. And productivity, that vital driver of economic growth, is lagging far behind comparable economies. The gap between the UK's output per hour and the rest of the G8 is now the biggest it's ever been since 1991. So that's a shriveled manufacturing sector, geographical imbalances, a colossal current account deficit, a growing dependence on household borrowing, and productivity lagging behind international comparators. To be frank, it's a wearily familiar list. These are long-term structural problems. They are the result of deep institutional weaknesses in the UK economy that have now survived successive governments. And they'll survive this one too. Far from making a break with the past, Osborne is a reversion to failed type. Since last year's election, the direction of travel has got worse. The limited restraints that were placed on the UK's financial system are currently being loosened. 
the head of the new financial watchdog, the Financial Conduct Authority, has been removed. A vital inquiry into the culture of the financial industry has been shelved. The bank levy has been whittled away to nothing following lobbying from the largest multilateral banks. Proposed new rules for senior bank managers have been ditched. Piece by piece, light-touch regulation is being restored. So the only sole novelty that Osborne has offered is austerity. And to be frank, this has little to do with sound economic management. There's now close to consensus amongst macroeconomists that the austerity experiment has failed. Austerity is not an economic necessity, it's a political choice. It's about how the state operates in relation to the economy and society as a whole. It's a choice for the UK economy that is politically easy since it works to benefit the powerful vested interests that exist within our society. It's a short-term choice. It leaves society dangerously exposed to the challenges ahead. I was interested in an article by Morris Obsfeld. He wrote it shortly before becoming chief economist at the IMF. It was a fascinating paper on how austerity can make political sense for some. It's entitled On Keeping Your Powder Dry. It describes how countries with large financial sectors must also maintain, maintain small governments. This is because a large financial sector imposes a high risk on the kind of systemic failure we saw in 2008. But when the private financial system fails, it's the public sector that must step in at vast expense. Bailouts must be arranged and deficit spending used to prevent a colossal slump. So governments must be small if financial sectors are large because they need, as Obsfeld said, to keep their powder dry. I just want to quote him, because I found it a fascinating, insightful article. He said, Our increasingly complex financial systems seem inherently prone to at least some instability. A precautionary approach to fiscal policy is essential for the credibility of government promises to support the financial system. To be frank, I believe that describes our current predicament absolutely perfectly. Austerity is about cutting the public sector down to size in case of further financial crises. It's a profoundly conservative choice since it works to the benefit of the UK's vested interests. Finance must be allowed its position in the driving seat. Multinational corporations must be allowed free reign, virtually setting their own tax rates, just as Google had done. It means doing nothing about the problems and long-term weaknesses that led to the 2008 crisis. And it means leaving society dangerously exposed to the new challenges. I'll just give the example of what happened over Christmas. How cuts to flooding defence systems left tens of thousands exposed to flooding. Our best predictions on climate change are that extreme weather like this will become more frequent in the future. And it's only collective provision that can help deal with this. It's also when working conditions are undermined and social provisions reduced... It means that those jobs created by changing te technology are left at the mercy of the market. So when Osborne proposes cu cutting tax credits, it meant thousands of our new small businesses and the self-employed were facing serious cuts in their standards of living. We need a social safety net to cope with how technology is transforming the world of work. Austerity cuts away at that safety net. 
I want to talk about Labour's alternative. We can view this choice the other way around. We can think about how we can change our economy to suit our society rather than changing society to suit our economy. So Labour now opposes austerity. We will always defend the good that has been won, whether it's the National Health Service or in-work benefits. This is not enough, though. We need to go much further, further than simply offering a defence of what we already have. New Labour offered a political settlement in which the private sector and its major vested interests would remain largely untouched, but public spending would be maintained. That political settlement came to a crashing halt in 2008. And we, as a Labour Party, we have to be honest about that. That is the only way we can claim not to have learned the lessons of the great financial crisis. So, to be frank, we cannot turn the clock back to 1997. However, old Labour solutions won't work now either, demanding a higher and higher rate of public spending from an economy with the UK's structural weaknesses is unsustainable. And nor can we simply demand top-down nationalisation as a panacea. The old Morrisonian model of nationalisation centralised too much power in a few hands in Whitehall. It had much in common with the new model of multinational corporations in which power is centralised in a few hands in Silicon Valley or in the City of London. It won't work in a world in which technological change is providing opportunities to decentralise power. We cannot turn the clock back to 1945 either. I want to... I'm glad you're sitting down. I want to quote Friedrich von Hayek. He taught at the LSE for many years. He's, he's somewhat politically distant from myself, fair to say. But he did raise a profound point about how information operates in a society when he noted that centralised bureaucracies can be overwhelmed by the information processing demands of complex modern societies. His preferred solution was to allow the market to act as the information processor, but I believe it was equally unviable and proved to be so. Markets can be crude information processors at best, as the crash of 2008 showed, <clears throat> and they still create unviable bureaucracies as well. So we should look instead to how different forms of organisation can operate in the economy, not just the capitalist firm or the nationalised industry, but many different ways of organising ownership and production. We need a far more sophisticated argument about ownership that doesn't just fall into a caricature either pure privatisation or pure state control. There's a rich tradition in the British Labour movement of this kind of thinking. There's another LSE academic, Harold Lasky, did much to promote the idea of decentralised socialism. Or we can look at the cooperative movement from the Rochdale pioneers onwards, or at the self-management and workers' control and ownership examples of the past that have been developed in other European countries as well. We have, too, a tradition of bringing different voices into management, other countries like Germany do this better, but here too we can think about the experiences and knowledge of the shop floor, how it can make its way into management decisions through worker representation on boards and oversight committees. Decentralisation and social entrepreneurship are part of the left. We have to move beyond tax and spend or command and control. Democracy and decentralisation are to be the watchwords of our new economics, our new socialism. We need a state that can address the serious challenges we face. But we need an economy that maximises opportunities for real progress that technological change offers.
Getting this balance right will not be easy. We've got to find a different way to the future. So to make this work, we need a wider conversation about the major institutions in British society without addressing how these institutions charged with managing the economy operate, we'll not be able to implement a path to the future. What are the best ways for the Bank of England and the Treasury to oversee the economy? How should these relationships function? How can we democratise these institutions? How can our giant financial institutions function for the good of the whole of society? And can they function viably at all on this scale? How can multinational corporations make a contribution to wider society particularly via the tax system? How do we promote and encourage new, more democratic ways of running businesses? By launching a series of reviews of institutions, I hope to start this conversation. It's going to be a challenge. This country is well used to a, a political conversation that fixates on the short-term knockabout. Parliament, has to be said, positively encourages it. But if Labour and the left are serious about offering a viable alternative, it is a conversation we've got and we must open up. And if we are serious as a society about creating an economy that can not just match the challenges ahead, but begin to create opportunities, it's a conversation, to be frank, we must all be part of. We can create a fair and more democratic society. Let me state our aim. Our aim is to create a radically more equal, fairer, a more democratic society based upon sustainable pr prosperity shared by all. I hope that you and the institution that is the LSE and all its staff, its students and others will make their contribution to this conversation and this venture. Thank you very much. Okay, um, just to uh, start the questioning, um, you referred yourself, John, to the challenge of the lessons of 2008 to 10, and indeed the fact that the Labour Party lost the 2015 general election. Now, I know you're some way out from a general election in 2020, but... In a sense, what, can you, what do you see about what happened in 2015 that informs the kind of things you think the Labour Party needs to do now to make it uh, win back the confidence of the electorate, which you've just said it didn't have in 2015? This is the debate we've been having at Shadow Cabinet, um, which is meant to be confidential, but as everything leaks, I might as well tell you. <laughs> It's interesting, uh, we've been trying to brainstorm the ideas about uh, why we lost in 2015. And it was, you know, the Clinton thing, it's the economy stupid, and it was about economic credibility. Um, and we've been trying to work out what the strategy was and how it failed. And Ed Balls' strategy was to demonstrate economic competence in comparison with what he described as Osborne's economic incompetence, because... I don't want to personalise this, but every target that's been set by George Osborne since 2010 um, is largely missed. You know, we were supposed to wipe out the deficit by last year. Um, all those individual targets, and, and you could have a checklist of failure, and you could compare that with 
some of the work that um, Ed Balls was arguing for, and Alistair Darling before him, actually, to give him his due. And actually, if you compared economic competence, uh, I think Ed Balls, to give him his due, you know, we had a few minor disagreements over time, um, but to give him his due, actually, I think he demonstrated a, a more thorough understanding of the economy and actually a greater level of economic competence in that sense. But actually, what we discovered is, despite all that, people believe the Tories more than us. And so narrative actually overcomes competence. Do you understand what I mean? Because this, the Tories had a, a very simple narrative, um, and it was extremely successful. And they just repeated it ad nauseum for virtually five, six years. And it was basically that the deficit was not caused by the economic crisis. It was caused by a, a Labour government overspending. Um, the one that really gets up my nose is fixing the roof while the sun shines. You heard that one? <laughs> and then the next bit was the economy. They wanted higher wages, low taxes, etc. And they just repeated that continuously. And people believe them. So the issue for us now is I think we've got to do both. We've got to both demonstrate uh, economic credibility through competence, but you've also got to get the narrative right as well. So a lot of our work that we're doing at the moment is, in all the meetings that we're doing around the country, is talking about what, what people feel about the economy and what the narrative is for them. And I think in, uh, the greatest lesson for us is that, that propaganda issue. Narrative beats competence, believe it or not, but eventually competence does catch up on you. So we've got to get both right. We've got to demonstrate we understand the economy. We've got ideas for the future that are practical, pragmatic, and realistic, and we'll be successful in gaining that prosperity that's shared by all. But we've also got to get the narrative right. And a lot of the work we're doing now is around that narrative. What's interesting as well, you can, you can blame the media for a lot of this. And um, I, you know, the media has not been the kindest to me and Jeremy Corbyn in recent months. There's young people here. I don't want to disillusion them, but you can't, you can't always believe you read in the Daily Mail. I don't want to, <laughs> don't want to upset you at all. But um, what's interesting, what Jeremy Corbyn's campaign demonstrated was that you can, you can develop your own media. Uh, one of them is social media, which we've never had available to us before, uh, and that was proved to be incredibly successful for us. But actually, word of mouth as well. Um, some of you know, uh, Jer uh, Tony said that I would chair Jeremy's campaign committee. And um, I did the traditional left thing, you know, book the halls. Don't book any hall larger than 100 people and make sure that you can move the chairs to one side in case no one turns up. And what happened was is that we booked the first one for 100, 500 turned up, the next one for 500,000 turned up, and it just went on like that. Jeremy did 100 meetings during that campaign. He you know the joke. He asked me what I tour around with him, and I said, look, it looked like the last of summer wine on tour if we two went round. <laughs> but the, what was interesting, um, we literally pa he packed halls out, and it was because people are hungry for a political debate and discussion. So word of mouth has become incredibly effective again. And that creates an opportunity then to develop a narrative which is based and honed down through debate and democratic discussion. So they're the lessons, really, particularly on the economic front. You've got to get the economic argument right. You've got to make sure you're competent and demonstrate that. But you cannot win solely on that. You've got to get a clear narrative as well. Okay, right. Let's take some questions. We'll start. I'll try and do these three at a time to get as many in as possible. Uh, so um, let's do three on this. Let's try a gentleman there who's on the front row. Um, woman there. And then the man behind, just randomly gone.
Uh, Nico McDonald, Chief Executive of the Research and Development Society. Um, John, I was interested, you talked about Imperial College and digital industries and technology. Uh, if we're going to grow the economy, we, I'm sure you'll agree, need to be innovating, doing R&D, creating new industries and new products and services. What's your perspective on this in terms of current policy, things like tax credits, skills, and the broader Blue Skies research? Okay, good, nice short question. And woman there, yeah. Hello, John. Carol Wilcox, Labour Land Campaign. <laughs> Here again. Um, I just wanted to say to you, I'll ask you that you will have a look at Jerry Jones and my paper on how to implement a land value tax. It's not easy. But I just want to ask you this question. Um, what do you think about this idea of basic income, which I'm dead against? Okay. <laughs> anybody, else has, anybody else has got anything else they're against and want to try it out? That's a nice obviously night. Okay, very good. Gentleman behind. <laughs> Uh, Mr. McDonald, good to see you again. Uh, I want to ask you a question about boom and bust. Now, uh, we heard many years ago that we'd eliminated boom and bust. Isn't the fundamental truth that under a capitalist economic system, you can't eliminate it? And as Professor David Harvey says, capitalism cannot solve its crisis. It just shifts them around globally. And I think he said it in this place with it Professor is, Tony Travers. It is, it is. Right, good. Okay. okay, three nice short questions, okay. John. All right. Uh, on the research and de development issue, um, the three areas, I'm touring around meeting all these different organisations, and it's interesting just the commonality of view that's emerging about the need for long-term patient investment. So that's, that's in skills, infrastructure, and new technology. Um, one of our advisory group, as you know, is Mariano Mazzucato, who's developed the work around um, using... The, the strategic state to create both products and markets working with the private sector. And a lot of that is linking up with academic institutions, etc. And it's interesting the examples that she gives from the, the US, where, you know, uh, Apple, for example, started up with a government grant. Um, the, some of the new technology on face-to-face, -face, uh, on, on direct contact, government grant as well. Uh, she did our first lecture. She, um, I was a bit worried when she said, actually, some of it was from the CIA, but there you are. <laughs> Um, so all the emphasis, and that's why I chose Imperial College with the greatest respect when I did that lecture, because if you remember when I spoke, I was surrounded by all these start-up firms in new technologies that were developing there. So research and development is absolutely critical, and it's the one, thing that, the one thing that's suffered under this government in recent years and the cutbacks that have taken place. And I, I'm, We've offered a, a, a cross-party approach on this to try and look at how you get long-term investment, patient investment beyond the life of one parliament, so it's not all this stop and start particularly with regard to research and development, and particularly with regard to investment in our academic institutions, most of which now are working very closely with the private sector to, to do that. Um, on the tax reliefs, um, I don't want to frighten people, but what Seema's doing is she's going through a, a, a sample of tax reliefs and these tax expenditures, which are the reliefs meant to change behaviour, just to see what's effective and what's not consulting as, as wide as we can. We'll come and have a chat with you about it, if that's okay. Consulting as wide as we possibly can to see what, what actually is producing long-term benefit, particularly with regard to the direction we want to take our, our economy in, which is around balancing up our finance sector with a manufacturing base based upon new technology. And that will require a large amount of research and development investment. 
the problem that we have at the moment, and, and you get more shocked by this, I shouldn't be after 18 years in Parliament, I suppose, is the number of tax reliefs that have been developed and never monitored by the Treasury after they've been introduced for their effectiveness. And some of them are shockers, to be honest. Uh, and so all that will go on, and we'll bring forward, a, I think, a tax regime which I think will be fairer and more effective, particularly in the, in the long term. But on the skills, infrastructure, and new technology, they're the areas that we have almost consensus on, like with the CBI, Federation of Small Businesses, the whole range of organisations I've spoken to, they all say the same thing. The worry about long-term infrastructure investment under this government is if you look at what the Charter... Uh, look at the debate around um, the Charter and the CSR this time around, you'll see that public investment is, is charted to go down about 1.3% of GDP by 2019-2020. OECD is saying it's got to be 34 just to stand still. So that's worrying, to be frank. In addition to that, we raised the issue... I'm going on too long, but let me do this. We raised the issue of the earned income of large corporations and others sitting on anything between 500 billion and 700 billion in this country and not investing, buying shares back in some respects. Why is that happening? Maybe it's because the tax relief regime isn't working effectively to attract their investment. Maybe it's because we haven't got the strategic state that we need to prize that money in for infrastructure and other research and development investments. So that's the work we're doing. I think it's really exciting, to be honest. Other think, people think I'm just a boring bureaucrat, but it works either way, doesn't it? On land value taxation... Look, let, so you're a supporter of land value taxation. Well, I, I've... I will, look, I've argued for it for quite a while. It will go into the, the review that's taking place uh, amongst our experts, Prem Seekers Review. They're doing a review of HMRC. They're looking at our tax base as well. They'll bring forward a whole range of suggestions, so we'll be looking at that too. I've campaigned on land value taxation. Um, if nothing else, like Tony, I'd just getting a wider range of council tax bans might help as a first step anyway. On basic income, I, some of you may know, we've, um, Joe Riles here, between, between us we organised for the last two years these things called the People's Parliament at the House of Commons to open up the building, the same way we did at County Hall, to anyone who wants to come in talk about an idea. And we had a session on the basic income, and I found it really interesting, and I went along to the group that is campaigning around that for annual meeting to, to listen to it. And again, it's an idea we want to look at. To be frank, um, child benefit was a form of basic income. It was a first step towards it. So I wouldn't dismiss benefits that uh, are not related specifically to the contributory principle either. On boom and bust, um, I wish Gordon Brown hadn't used that phrase. <laughs> and, I advised, and I advised him against it. Um, Capitalism obviously is inherently crisis-ridden at time and, and, and goes around these various cycles. What we're trying to do is make sure that we harness the resources of, of capitalism to the benefits of the whole of our society and to prevent, hopefully, the scale of crises that have occurred in the past. Um, again, uh, as, I, as I said in my speech, we're asking quite challenging questions about the solutions of the past haven't worked, so how do we look at new, new ideas? And part about that, is about democratising our economy. Um, in the 1980s, um, there was a big discussion in the Labour Party about um, what, what, do, what was the meaning of socialism. And I remember Neil Kinnock sent um, Bernard Crickoff, uh, again a lecturer around the corner at um, Burbeck, to, to say what was socialism. He came back with a simple phrase, it's about the achievement of equality through democracy. And I think our democratising our economy is part and parcel of that. And in that way, you can avoid... The, the inherent crisis-ridden crisis nature of capitalism, or at least avoid its worst effects. Right. Uh, three more. To, 
chap in the front row there, and um, woman in green at the back, and then man in blue here. Right. Hi, hi, John. Oh, hi. I, I voted for Jeremy in the last elect in the uh, leadership election. I was uh, very in impressed with the new politics and the idea of grassroots. Um, and I've been very fed up with the shadow cabinet murmurs, murmurings and the uh, PLP, PLP <laughs> problems as well. But I'm starting to worry people like Seamus Milne are possibly getting a bit too much power and certainly mm -hmm. economic policy too much. And it is really kind of aggravating a lot of the issues. Would you say that, would you say there is a problem? Could you reassure me that there isn't one? <laughs> <laughs> When you say you're worried about... Uh, no, don't, uh, keep the microphone. Uh, when you uh, say you're worried about the shadow cabinet, just, I mean, you have unravelled it a bit. Unravel it a little right. bit more what worries you, because it's a, an interesting point. Well, there's obviously, there's obviously problems in trying to produce a clear message of what they're trying to do, and there's a communications team and the, and the individual MPs sort of disagreeing publicly. It's not... You know, that there is clearly some sort of problem there which needs to be addressed. Okay, all right, very clear. And woman Maggie Ellis, um, I coordinate a European group about e-health technology, and I am very alarmed that your shadow cabinet is not making sufficient in the economy about the value of e-health technology to the country. Policymakers in this country are very slow to introduce systems proved to be cost-effective, what are you going to do about it? Do you want to explain that and give the examples of it? Because I think it's yeah, quite well, for example, it's a great area of in the East End of London, they have a virtual ward. A thousand patients were treated last year. They were given computers at home to measure their own health. They could see the doctor in the hospital. They didn't have to go there. They didn't have to get infection. They didn't go by ambulance. They didn't leave their dogs and cats at home. They were very happy. And they saved half a million pounds. Yeah. Why aren't we doing that everywhere? Why aren't you putting holes in Mr. Hunt's health system? Okay, very good. And then man here in blue... Sorry to recognise people by colour, but it's the easiest way. No, uh, in blue, this, this uh, chap in blue. To be, I'll come. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get back Sorry. to you. We'll get back to you. Don't worry. <laughs> uh, Richard Melville, Cellularity. Um, in 2008, I think it's fair to say that Iceland fared probably worse than we did. Um, unlike us, they allowed their banking system to completely collapse and uh, they've now rebuilt it in a manner that they claim will better benefit the Icelandic people. Um, after a few years of uh, horrendous decline, the economy now seems to be doing rather well. Perhaps uh, do you think we should have maybe done the same thing? Um, with the banking sector looking to head into maybe troubled waters once again, what do you advise that we can do to, to head off trouble? Not on the matter of the shadow cabinet, because, I mean, it, it, yeah, you will be aware, as anybody, that it, it, what's gone on since the new Labour leadership took over uh, does look, uh, on occasion, a bit uh, chaotic. And to be serious, from, I mean, you know, in a sense, the splits and the difficulties that are referred to clearly, uh, you know, if I'm not to speak on your behalf, but undermine even people who support you or supported you and voted. Yeah, okay. I'll let Seamus Milner and you, you find him aggravating. 
cheer him up no end. I think it's the nicest thing anyone's said about him for ages. Um, He's a friend, and actually Seamus has has been superb in terms of his work with us. Um, Let me just say this. In terms of the shadow cabinet itself, um, the new politics we're trying to introduce is make sure that people are fully involved and there's democratic debate and discussion. I I keep saying to people, don't don't mistake um, democracy and discussion for dissent and division. Um, uh, The media and others need to get used to this new style of politics, which is allowing people to express their views and then hopefully then coming to a democratic decision and us holding to it. The, on, the, on the vast, 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 vast bulk of issues, um, there's general agreement. The, where we've had um, a significant disagreement um, was over the bombing of Syria, and that's why I advocated um, a free vote, and that was accepted by the Shadow Cabinet, condemned by David Cameron as a lack of leadership on our part, And then three weeks later, he announced there'd be a free vote on the EU for the Conservative Party. So I find it somewhat bizarre. Um, um, You will find also within the Parliamentary Labour Party, again, the vast bulk of the Parliamentary Labour Party are supportive and just want to get on with the day job, which is opposing the Tories, developing the policies for the future and campaigning within the country. But we have a media that obviously will try to highlight and um, dramatise every disagreement that that happens. Um, And it's interesting, the last couple of days, that's happening with the Conservative Party as well over the European Union. But what we're trying to do is uh, make sure that everything we do is thoroughly discussed, absolutely thoroughly discussed. So it is about uh, really having democracy. I went uh, 18 years in Parliament, you know, it got to the stage where sometimes under new Labour... um, the, the amount of democracy became extremely limited so, and levers were pulled and hands had to go up. And it was the same. We whittled down democracy throughout the party. We hollowed it out to a certain extent, reduced the low Labour Party conference, constituency views were not particularly well heard. And as a result of that, I think, to be frank, we made mistakes. I, I think when you have a hollowing out in democracy in that way, horrendous mistakes can be made. I'll give the exa- two examples of where it happened, where people, I think, were forced to vote against their best judgment, and that was Iraq and tuition fees. And both of them, I think, have come back to haunt us over the years. So uh, within, uh, within the Shadow Cabinet, I think there's an element of loyalty and commitment that we'll continue to work on. On, the, on some issues, like Trident, where there is clearly d- differences of views, we'll manage it through a democratic process. Um, expect the media to report that uh, appallingly, because that's the nature of the media at the moment. But I think... The, I just assure you that there's an element of goodwill there. There is a small group within the Parliamentary Labour Party, a very small group that haven't come to terms with Jeremy's mandate yet. And some of them, to be frank, feel dispossessed because they saw their political careers in a standard trajectory and they feel that's been pulled away from them. But what we've done is try to invite people back in. There are a number of people who refused to serve um, Jeremy's cabinet. Everyone was offered a position. Um, some refused to serve. And it was bizarre that, you know, they refused to serve on positions they weren't offered on the basis of policies they hadn't read. It was extraordinary. But what we've tried to do is bring them back in, and bit by bit, people are coming back and doing pieces of work for us, and 
in that way, I think we'll be able to hold together and develop the policies. But it is, you're right, people don't vote for a divided party. And um, we've, what we've got to do is learn some lessons as well, I think, about how we handle the media. Even though it is hostile, as I say, we've got to create our own media more effectively and maybe not lead with our chins so much. Um, and I'm as bad at that as, uh, as most of them, to be honest. So you, we just learn lessons. We're, we're, si- we're five months in. And I think the way in which um, the development of policy is happening, the way in which we're developing the campaigning approach within the country itself, narrowing down our message and sorting out our narrative, I think you'll see coming to fruition and reassure people over the time. That doesn't mean to say I don't want to brain some of them at times, um, but that's democracy. And I, and I just say I, I, would, I would rather... I would, I would rather have that than what we've had in the past, which was the quashing of debate and any form of dissent. What we're building up now, and it's beginning to happen as a change of culture, which is to respect dissent and respect the other person's point of view, and actually as a result of that, maybe learn some lessons from it. That's the style of Jeremy Corbyn as well. There was a lot of kerfuffle about the reshuffle taking ages. And to be honest, I was bored with it as well. But the way that Jeremy wanted to do it, He's a very caring, considerate person. I just want to talk it through with people, look at different options for them, work it out. And that, that's the nature of the new politics we're introducing. I think it's more humane and, and has an element of, um, well, I think has an element of humanity about it that's lacking in politics in the past. In terms of the e-technology and health, I, the reason I ask you to expand on it is because I think that's the way that many people now are arguing we should go and the experiments that have taken place in different parts of the country have proved to be so effective. Um, you're saying we need to take it on board more. We are, but I th- I'll invite you in to come and have a chat with our health team and you can talk about what the direction you feel they should be going. But it's certainly one that pr- professionals and others have been coming to us with examples about how... And again, this is this... This is the short, small amounts of investment can have long-term real benefits, but we need to do it now. And people are so creative in the NHS coming up with their different ideas. I, I give the example in my own area is my local hospital now is looking at linking up at Brunel University, which is around the corner, and looking again at every aspect in the university about every department looking at how they can relate to health. And that relates from new technology, it relates to engineering, and it even relates to getting down to some of the management theory about how you manage uh, the whole operation on, on the NHS at Hospital. I, I agree with you, that's the way to go, and I think really exciting. Come in and see us. The issue around Iceland... Um, Look, when it came to the collapse, I was the first MP to raise in Parliament Northern Rock um, and Granite. If you remember, Granite was the um, euphemism for the tax haven offshore, etc., which they were laundering money through. Um, and at that point in time, my solution was straightforward and highly expected, highly predictable. I called for the nationalisation of those banks at the time. And Alistair Darling and others refused, and then two weeks later nationalised them. And his argument with me is, well, you were bound to get it right in 30 years, of course, for nationalisation. Um, but I, at that point in time, what angered me is the way that they were nationalised, in that we virtually poured money into them, rehabilitated them to a certain extent, but really didn't get much out of it either. We didn't have much control. And my fear at the moment, and John Vickers' piece in the Financial Times this morning, 
I just read it. It is fundamentally important. All those lessons that we learned from 2008, I mentioned it in my speech to a certain extent, are almost being unpicked. And if John Vickers, the chair of our banking commission, is actually saying that you know, the, the, the Bank of England's proposals that have been consulted on at the moment are ineffective, that worries me. Also in Iceland, I have to say, they locked a few people up. They locked a few bankers up. I think it sends a message to some of them, actually. And what worries me is the banking bills going through Parliament at the moment, which is lifting the reverse burden of proof off bankers as well, reducing the, 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 the regulation overall, and introducing reforms, I think, which again, as I agree with Sir John Vickers to a large extent on this, is loosening the regulation so that it makes us prone to, makes us vulnerable to the prospects of abuse in the future. I find it deeply worrying. If you were Chancellor in the near future and the and RBS was in part or in whole still inside the public sector or you had control over it, would you want to keep it there? I want, it? Yeah, I wanted to retain RBS and that became our state investment bank because one of the ideas I thought was excellent that Ed Miliband brought, brought forward was about the banking sector we need to make sure that the, uh, we have smaller banks, regional banks etc, even the local authorities again becoming in, involved in lending particularly you know, in the old GLC days we gave mortgages out, we took equity states etc um, so I, I want to see a decentralised banking system and not dependent on big four or big five but if we were going to do if we were going to look at long-term development of our infrastructure, it would be good to have a state infrastructure bank and to use that. Um, again, the way in which Osborne has whittled down the banking levy and loaded some of the, that charge on, onto the challenger banks, again, reinforces the centralisation process that got, with regard to banking, that got us into trouble in the first place. I find it worrying. Okay, right. Uh, three more. Um, do it in threes. Chuck in the middle here. Um, and the middle, um, then over there, and over here. Female speaker over here, perhaps. Not too many men. Right. Well, I'll just take these two, and then we'll, I'll worry about over there. <laughs> In a moment. Right. Who did I say first? Right. Yes, here. Right. Thank you very much, uh, John Newham, Labour Party member. Wondering what is the European dimension to Labour's economic policy, bearing in mind we're bound to be asked about it in this referendum whenever it takes place. Okay, nice and clear. And there was a man there in a shirt, yes, with a shirt and tie this time. Blue shirt, red-ish tie. Hi, Chris Everett. Um, just going on from that question, actually, you mentioned uh, new politics. Uh, surely part of this novelty will be honesty, and uh, I just want to know why you're not being honest about your real views on the European Union referendum and joining with your seven other colleagues in Labour leave. Uh, yeah. Okay. okay. And one, I take the man here in the orange who's been very patient. Uh, uh, good evening. Ian Shirley, a Labour Party member. I'd like to ask, one of the issues we talk about at the moment is uh, infrastructure. And one of the fundamental things, it seems to me, that we need to do is to expand Heathrow. And I'd like to get your views on that. Yeah. <laughs> These are all non-contentious. Um, in terms of, let's wrap the EU questions up. Um, in terms of the EU campaign from here on in, um, obviously what we'll be, our policy position is to, to remain within the EU. That was... Um, the agreement we came to to argue for reform from within as well. One of the key issues that we'll be raising, uh, which is the one that 
which we've been pointing out in Parliament and in public for the last few weeks, is around agreements around tax evasion and tax avoidance. So we arrive at a common policy on that. Um, Jeremy on Thursday is meeting with the, um, European Socialist and Social Democratic leaders, and we're going to bring forward the idea is to bring forward a further meeting around those to look at a long-term reform agenda for Europe, particularly looking at the development of economic policy that we can work together on. Uh, in addition to that, it is looking at the role of the various e economic institutions within Europe to see how they can harness and we can harness them but, and work with them with regard to our own commitments about anti-austerity, long-term infrastructure investment, etc. Um, what's, what's interesting is that what the EU debate has, has done for us, I think now, has opened up not just the narrow debate that Cameron's having, which is more about party management than anything else. It's opened up for us now, and particularly for me, it's opened up the opportunities that Europe can provide us as long as we work cooperatively together. And that's the, that's the point you're, you're making, is because years I'm old enough to have voted in the last referendum, and I voted not to go in, um, and I've been uh, somewhat anxious about the way Europe has gone. Not to stay in. Not, not to stay in, that's right, yes. Yes, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we both remember Harold Wilson. That's mm. how old we are. Um, um, but I've been, I've, I've been convinced that, of the need to, to remain within in terms of jobs and commitment, etc. And also the internationalist approach that we've tried to develop as a party in terms of working cooperatively with others across Europe and elsewhere in the globe. But I do see the need for a reform agenda. And that, the good thing about the EU debate now, it will enable us to bring forward a reform agenda. Yanis um, Varoufakis is a friend of mine. We've got him doing one of our lectures. I can't remember what date it is, but one of our lectures and seminars. He'll be, he's just launched a DM, uh, which is about a 10-year program of reform. Uh, Mélenchon has done exactly the same thing. So we'll be inviting them to participate in our debates over here about the long-term future of Europe. So I'm, tr I'm trying to be as honest as I can. Uh, and that's an honest position. I'm, I'm now supporting the... the Starting to interrupt. I mean, isn't there a problem, though, for the Labour Party, and particularly for those in your position in the Labour Party, that is the very things that David Cameron is trying to negotiate are pushing it away from yes. the yeah. things that make it easier yeah. for you, people like yourself to want to stay in the Labour Party, given at one point you didn't. Yeah, I th the whole agenda for Cameron, as I say, I think is about party management, and he'll come back with peace in our time type document I'm sure on Friday morning and um, he'll, he'll phrase that as a huge success, no one will really believe that I don't think but, so we've got to move the debate onto the real agenda which is what, is Europe, what does Europe mean for us and I've been touring around a lot of northern cities at the moment a lot of jobs particularly in the north where we've not been able to create them through this government, a lot of them have been created as a result of cooperation in Europe so a lot of jobs are dependent with regard to our relationship with Europe and it's interesting northern MPs on left, right and centre are campaigning vigorously to remain within the EU and again, mind you, there are splits I, I, went, I spoke to the CBI um, in a dialogue with them and you know, there's splits within the CBI and elsewhere, it's interesting but no, we'll be, we'll be campaigning on an honest basis on that, on that way. But we'll look to re develop our, our reform agenda. Um, with regard to Heathrow, I'm the MP for Heathrow. People know that, do they? Yeah, OK. Um, <laughs> I mean, surely the great thing about Heathrow is it produces jobs at all parts of the labour market, lots of them. Don't get me them. going, don't get me going. 
Uh, well, let, me, let me tell you the position on Heathrow for my, And what's nice about it, within the Labour Party debate, this is your point, actually, the way in which people have respected my views, even though at the moment I think I'm in a minority, but I think I might be in a majority soon if they're not careful. Me and Curious alliances with Zach Goldsmith, Sadiq Khan, Boris Johnson is my next-door neighbour, who's promised to lie down in front of the bulldozers. It's not an incentive supporting the third drama. But uh, for me, let me just say, so you know my position, I'm opposed to the development of the third drama at Heathrow. I don't think it's necessary. I think we need to coordinate the five airports that serve London in that way, because Stansted is half empty. In that way, we'd be able to cope with, with the increased demand that we have. But just so you know, uh, in my constituency, 4,000 homes would be rendered unlivable by either air pollution, noise pollution but air pollution in particular, that's 10,000 people forced out of their homes, schools, communities. At one point in time, they were planning to put a road through the local cemetery where friends and, and many of my local families are buried. So it's unacceptable environmentally. And if we are really going to tackle climate change, I don't think you can have the expansion of aviation on, on this scale. But that's a whole debate. On your point, we'll have it honestly within the Labour Party itself. We'll arrive at a, a decision, uh, and people's views will be respected, particularly their constituency interest but on the infrastructure thing itself leave aside Heathrow uh, that we've got to we've got to sort out long-term patient investment the Mariana Mazzucato argument uh, particularly around infrastructure now when it came to the flooding issue I, I contacted George Osborne and said look we'll do a deal with you let's sign up on this issue because the, the last Labour government to given their due did exactly the right thing they got the pit review put forward long-term infrastructure proposals, a long-term investment plan, and to give the Labour government the due at the time they signed up to it, then that was cut in 2010. And I said to Osborne, we can't have on issues like this, particularly big infrastructure projects, we can't have this short-termism. I'm willing to sign up to certain projects on a long-term view beyond the life of one parliament. Uh, I never got a response, but I'm going to keep on pushing in on it because I think it's absolutely critical. Um, I go around everywhere, everywhere I go, it's infrastructure projects that are held up, or the ones that are happening are going um, out, of, out of budget dramatically, not particularly well managed. We set up a proposal in our manifesto about setting up an infrastructure commission. Osborne's done that, and I welcome that. And they've appointed Lord Adonis. He's a great guy, and he'll do a good job. But it needs the resources invested into it. And it needs a relationship between the strategic state and the private sector to enable that to happen. And I can't see, see that happening. That's why issues around Northern Powerhouse and all the rest. If you want my record on track on the infrastructure, uh, Tony will know. We built the Thames Barrier and the GLC. You know, we built the Thames Barrier 30 years ahead of its time when people were talking, not talking about flooding at that point in time. And it demonstrates, actually, with foresight, but we did it on the GLC, and Tony will tell you, cross-party support, signed up beyond one life of a minister, beyond the life of one administration. And that's what we're offering the Tories at the moment. Okay, and another round. Uh, yep, woman there. And... And it's so hard to see hands in the, yes, behind the computer there. So, woman in the grey. Is it the questions boring or the answers? People are <laughs> Maybe people coming in as well. Oh, there's people uh, coming come. in as well. Okay, let's take the question. Hello. Um, so what do you think of the Bank of England's macroprudential powers over buy-to-let in the housing market? Yeah. And do you think the Bank of England could or should have a mandate to decrease inequality? Yes. 
Okay, and uh, where did I go second? Even I can't remember now. So, in fact, in fact, the reason people are leaving is I'm just been whispered to me we were supposed to finish at seven thirty. Oh, so, sorry. another piece okay. of excellent chairing on my okay, part. Sorry, <laughs> um, gentleman here, and then over behind the computer. Yeah, my. So that's why. That's what happened. Uh, yeah, uh, when the Corbyn leadership came in, there were some sound bites about opposing austerity, and today. We've heard from you some Westminster Village sound bites <laughs> about opposing the austerity. Yeah. But let's get real for a moment. There are millions of people in this country who are suffering very badly from the austerity. People with severe health problems who used to be helped with them and who are no, no longer being helped with them. People who can't put food on the table for their children. What we want to hear from the Labour Party leadership is what it is going to do about the austerity. Okay. Um, Final, third question, behind, exactly behind the uh, computer. Uh, thank you. Um, but, uh, thank you very much, Shadow Chancellor. Um, I noticed that you said that decentralisation and democracy will be the watchwords of our new economics and our new socialism. Um, I also detected the slight hint towards George Brown almost as much as to Gordon Brown. So would you consider returning to that Operation Teddy Bear-style approach of splitting apart the Treasury's budgetary roles from its economic planning roles? And if so, how would you achieve it? Yeah, yeah. Little Neddy. Oh, that's, that's really good. Uh, the Freudian slip around George Brown and Gordon Brown is because we've been discussing that exactly. My view, and I'm, I'm not trying to preempt Bob Kerslake's Treasury review, um, but that's why we've said look at the economics ministry and the finance ministry roles. Because my view, is, and it's been for a long while, and it isn't just under Labour or Tory, it's right the way through, is that the Treasury now dominates government. Nothing moves in government now without Treasury dominance. Its fingers are everywhere. And I just want it to get back to its job of managing the finances, sorting that out. You know, when um, HMRC, when HMRC was. Uh, founded under Customs and Excise and Inland Revenue merged together. Um, again, uh, 3,000 jobs went overnight and then another 12,000 jobs. And again, the Treasury took its eye off the ball completely. And as a result of that, they lost all that expertise. Um, you, know, you know the figures. Richard Murphy's argument around uh, tax evasion, tax avoidance is $120 billion a year. Can't collect all of that. Maybe $30, 30 billion could be collected. But it's as a result of that loss that... I'm hollowing out of the HMRC during that period. I worked with PCS, the trade union, and they were warning of this. I was meeting tax inspectors with years and years of service who were then being laid off. And it's things like that, little parts of the Treasury remit that they haven't got right because they're fiddling in everything else. Now, I, want, I would like Biz to be a proper economic development department. Now, when, when Harold Wilson did this, I know this sounds like back to the future, but when Harold Wilson did this, the main problem he had is he had George Brown in charge, and he was a drunk. Sorry. Uh, and, and, but a creative drunk in some respects. Um, and he had his, he had his own um, ideas that actually, if you look at that department, if you look at the statistics from it, the analysis of it, it's quite successful. So even though he, he failed in the end, he was discredited, etc., whilst it was operating, was it, I thought it was 
challenging. It was looking at you know, that phrase, Harold Wilson's phrase, white heat of technology and all the revolution, all that sort of thing. It was looking at the long-term economic foundations of our country. And it was, I thought it was doing some good work. So I'd like to look back at that. But I don't want to preempt Kurzweil's review. We'll see what com comes out of that. Um, but interesting, again, the, if you look at the debates in, in the 60s, uh, that went into the 70s, it was about long-term planning, which I, I find interesting, not the form that they were looking at, but the form of wider engagement. The other thing as well, let me just throw this on, on, the, on the table too. I'm worried that there's a, there's a breakdown of the communication line from the shop floor to government. Now, the way past governments have tried to bring that together is to have these economic development councils and all the rest of it, but we've got to try and look at how the wealth creators themselves, both the workers, the entrepreneurs, the business leaders, how they now communicate into government and develop policy. And also look at their wider remit of changing society. One of the ideas that Tony Atkinson brought forward in his book on inequality, for example, was the establishment, as, a, as they have right the way across Europe, of social economic councils, where you have all sides of industry and civil society coming together with a sort of mission approach. They're given a mission to look at something and tackle the issue and bring forward reports to government. Now, that operates right the way across Europe. Now, Tony's idea on that, and we're preparing at the moment a paper for the Shadow Cabinet to look at whether we want to float that but also try and get Osborne and Cameron interested in it so it becomes, again, a bipartisan approach as, as doing something useful, so not waiting for a Labour government just in, in 2020. And, that, and one of the ideas I'd like to throw at them is inequality. How do you tackle inequality? And that would have ramifications right the way across industry as well as, as society itself. So, uh, yes, as I said, I don't want to preempt Bob's, Bob's work, but I'm interested in that, in that split and getting the Treasury to do its job um, rather than to interfere in everything else. In terms of, um, I'll come back to the austerity, in terms of the Bank of England prudential powers, we, we met Mark Carney last week, funnily enough, for a discussion, and we raised the issues about um, the, 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 the overall issue around housing credit, but also what's happening in London too, are the issues around um, commercial and office development as well, which has taken place, and destabilising the market. Again, um, in the Banking Reform Bill, some elements which I support, the idea of having um, the Prudential and the Financial and the Monetary Committees brought into the Bank of England, I'm anxious about, um, but at least giving them equal status because you recognise now that monetary policy on its own isn't going to work, fiscal policy isn't going to either, you've got to have a look at elements around Prudential policy too. And on the buy-to-let market, I just say... Um, Jeremy and I, literally, I don't, this isn't a boast, but for the last 10 years or so, we've been like crying in the wilderness over the issue of buy-to-lets and the way they've transformed society and to, to the, I think, poorly in many constituencies. But in addition to that, in the way in which they've affected the distribution of wealth in this country adversely and, and increased inequality. That's why in the, when you look at the mandate for the Bank of England various committees, I favour, and that's why I got Danny Blanche for our starting up with the MPC, looking at the mandate overall, because it would be useful to look, not because the MPC man, mandate is just about inflation, what about looking at employment, unemployment and inequality? Now, you could look at that across the whole of the, the work of the Bank of England, the three committees that's got, and I think it would produce a, a more grounded debate about the policies that the Bank of England is advising government on and also implementing themselves. So, yes, I, I'm, you I'm would up change, for that. You would consider changing the remit. Of yes, the yes, and that's why, we've got, that's why we've got Danny doing the first review on MPC and then we'll roll out to the rest, quite honestly. Um, but you know what Danny Blanchard is like, it's like riding a tiger, you never know who's come up with next really, but um, 
In addition to that, it gives me advice in public, <laughs> which is always helpful. Um, with regard to opposing us, I agree with you. I, I agree with you, and we should be doing more, and we will do more. We're trying to mobilise campaigns at the moment, and I'll just give this example. In my constituency tonight, there'll be 200 families sleeping in bed and breakfast. There'll be others sleeping in sheds, garages, rented, rented out. And I've also got a shanty town developed uh, in my constituency. People sleeping by the canal, under bridges, etc. I'll have others who are in employment at Heathrow Airport who work all hours God sent to keep a roof over their heads. Um, people, parents passing in the night, their children never see them in the same place at the same time. Uh, and I've, we've reinvented the back-to-back -back in my constituency where the front of a house is rented and the back of a house is rented. Uh, average rent is about 1400 to 1600 pounds a month, unaffordable for many families, and as a result of that, they go into payday loans, credit card debts, etc. And that's why I mentioned in my speech the increase in, in unsecured loan uh, debt is extraordinary at, at the moment, and it's real suffering. We will do more. We'll try and be more vociferous. We've done the best we possibly can, even with a hostile media. We'll be mobilising campaigns, and we're trying to make that as a feature of our local government campaign elections as well, because local authorities now, particularly Labour local authorities, are being grotesquely victimised, losing grant, and as a result of that, moving from not even discretionary services are virtually gone, now being impacted upon their statutory services. And the one area I fear for is social care, adult social care in particular, and as a result of that, again, it's a short-term saving with a long-term cost because those elderly people then wind up in accident emergency units at hospitals and then become this phrase, which are appalling, really, bed blockers because they can't leave hospital because there's nowhere else for them to go. So it's a salutary lesson from you, and I, I take it. I take it. Okay, we now have overrun 7.30, so I'm going to need one question, just one, an issue that hasn't been raised at all so far that you'd like to have raised. All right, one just do this very quickly. A man in the check shirt there and a woman, I think, over there in black. That, um, just do this very quickly. Then we'll stop. Thank you. One of the biggest reasons for growing inequality is families passing on wealth from one generation to another. Gordon Brown, instead of um, increasing inheritance tax, reduced it. Where do you stand on this issue? Okay. okay. And the other question here? Oh, your amount. Sorry, I've wrong gender. Sorry, I can't. <laughs> sorry about that. Very sorry. Um, has Labour given up on the South West? Right. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. No, curiously enough, uh, this, uh, this is a coincidence, but curiously enough, Jeremy, Tom Watson and I are doing stuff down in the South West and... First week of April, um, we've got extremely strong parties down there now. Um, we'll be mobilising effectively, but one of the issues we're going down there again um, is to talk about um, the needs of the southwest. One of the things that came up in the, some of the meetings I've done down there already, it's interesting, the number of small businesses that have set up down there is quite remarkable. All of them have the same demand, infrastructure investment, particularly around broadband, because it's holding them back. So that's why Tom Watson is going down there with us, because he's leading on the digital revolution. And so, no, not at all. We're not giving up on any area of the country. Uh, and uh, you know, Our membership has doubled since last May. It's absolutely doubled. And we've got a vibrant, active party working within the community and mobilising right the way across the piece. Uh, but we're trying to make sure, and this part of this decentralisation argument as well, we're trying to make sure that the 
the Labour Party now is, is evolving into a social movement, almost in the way it was when it was first founded. And that means be, working deep within the heart of communities and constructing policies on that basis, no longer centralised from the top. So from the Treasury team, what, one of the things we'll be doing, we're doing it, rolling out these lectures and seminars right the way around the country, right the way around the country. But what I want to do is then evolve that in, if we can, to next year, into more detailed work, for example, how communities come together to construct their own local budgets and construct their long-term economic plans for their area. And that way, I think, we'll, we'll be able to ensure that areas like the Southwest take a leading role in developing their local economies and also we learn lessons from it. Um, in terms of inheritance tax, let me just say we opposed what the Tories did in terms of cutting inheritance tax. To the, what was, I, I think, really angry-making for me, and I, I, I've... On this new politics, I'm trying not to get angry. Um, I'm halfway through the Jeremy Corbyn course of being nice, being, being nice to people. Um, and what angered me at the same time as the, the Osborne was cutting inheritance tax to the richest, what, 60,000 families in the country, that was when they were bringing forward the cuts to tax credits. And I found that was a demonstration about austerity being a political choice, not an economic necessity for us. Um, We've got Thomas Cocchetti on the um, advisory council. Our next meeting, I'm looking at James here, I think our next meeting is in two weeks' time. It's a week's time, I think it is. Um, and one of the commissions we've done is ask him to bring forward his ideas about how we move forward based upon the book that he did. And we're going to try and work those up. I've also invited Rachel Reeves to come back and do a piece of work around this. Some of you may know she's done some brilliant um, articles recently around um, inequality, um, inequality in wealth in particular. So I want to try and link those two together, bring forward a consultation paper, and then that becomes part of our policy development overall. Uh, it is it's an area we've got to look at, uh, and we've got to do it creatively, and we've got to do it in a way in which demonstrates that we can bring along the vast bulk of the population with us. But again, uh, it's, it's just staggering the way in which wealth has been redistributed in this country from the middle and low earners to the richest within our society. And that, if, if I, now I went down to Occupy on a regular basis, and if one thing came out of Occupy, of, of real understanding and meaning, it was that 1% and 99%. And that's what our society is framed as at the moment, and I think that's what we've got to challenge. Okay, right. We must finish now. Now, I'm afraid I've got some instructions in reverse order here. Um, so before I ask for a, a round of applause uh, for John McDonnell, I'd just like to uh, thank you all for your patience for my timekeeping or my failure <laughs> to know what the time end, end was at all. Um, I want to ask you to hold back when we've uh, given a round of applause so that uh, it's possible to uh, get the Shadow Chancellor up the um, gangway here. And uh, beyond that, I'd just like to thank him for coming here this evening. I know he's not feeling 100%. Uh, and also to thank all of you for your questions and for being here this evening. So thank you all.